Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Joel Milney, the CEO of RepairSmith, the first and only full-service mobile delivery solution for car repair and maintenance, and this is a company backed by Daimler AG, the parent company to Mercedes-Benz. In this episode, we go through some of the first things that Joel did once he started as CEO at RepairSmith, why he started with building the team and really defining the culture at the company, why RepairSmith decided to not be a marketplace, what went to that decision-making, why there isn't much innovation in this space and why RepairSmith has been able to do what they've done in terms of delivering on this model of car repair and maintenance delivered right to customers, the actual experience behind what it's like to use RepairSmith as a customer. And then we go through some of Joel's previous experience fundraising, how the LA tech scene has evolved since 2009, and really RepairSmith's response to the global pandemic and why they donated $100,000 in free car repair to people that needed it most. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, We Are No Code. Their mission is to empower non-technical founders. The problem is that if you don't know how to code, building your MVP or app idea is a frustrating process, developers are expensive, looking for a perfect tech co-founder is time-consuming, and learning how to code can take three years or more. Their program is called the No Code Startup, and it's a no-code accelerator program that teaches founders how to build, launch, and monetize their startup without hiring expensive developers or waiting for a technical co-founder. NoCode is a disruptive new way of building software products that allows users to drag and drop functionalities to build powerful solutions like Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, and much, much more. They have founders in over 12 countries and partnerships with organizations like UCLA Accelerator, Startup Boost, and Scale Health. If you want to learn more and find out if NoCode is a good fit for your startup, visit them at wearenocode.com slash just go grind. Without further ado, here is Joel Milne, the CEO of RepairSmith. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And obviously, we're talking about RepairSmith. And for people who aren't familiar, what is this company, Joel? Uh, RepairSmith is the most convenient way to repair your car because we come to you. So we provide um, online pricing, uh, online scheduling, and on-site car repair. It seems almost too easy, Joel. After doing the research, uh, looking into this, it makes me think of why this wasn't around to begin with or what was being done before. I'm curious as to how you got started with this in the first place, Joel. Sure. So, um, you know, I have done previously four venture back startups. This is my fifth. Um, and this is the first one where I didn't actually come up with the idea or was friends or, 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 or uh, in the room when the idea was being thought about, it actually started uh, in with Mercedes, a guy, a guy who worked over Mercedes in Germany, who saw this opportunity um, and uh, really thought it should exist and uh, convinced Mercedes to invest in it. And we joined, you know, his background, he's a, an engineer and um, been in the automotive industry for 25 years. And my background's in consumer technology and building tech companies and, we joined up and uh, here we are, you know, a little over two years later and 
150 employees later and <laughs> repairing a lot of cars every day. That's awesome. And I'm curious, you know, with this as well and deciding to join a company that obviously you didn't have the idea necessarily for, but you, I assume, have, you know, many options for what to work on and founder market, founder product fits a big thing as well in terms of, you know, looking at founders and why they decide to join certain companies. For you, what was it about this idea that you decided to join? Well, um, you're, you're right. Uh, I am lucky at the point in my career where I can kind of pick and choose my opportunities. And I had been taking some time off and I got the call about this one uh, from a, a kind of a mutual contact. And it was just too exciting to pass up. And, and a couple of things about it. One, you know, if you think about it, car repair has been the same for 50 years, right? It, it, it kind of worked the same way back in the seventies. You call up, it's still telephone based, right? <laughs> you call up the shop and say, Hey, I'm hearing this noise or uh, I've got this problem. And they say, come on down and we'll take a look at it. And, and that's kind of how it still works. And so I thought about that and I asked myself, why doesn't this exist? As you know, that was your first comment as we, as we started off here. <laughs> and you know, the more I thought about it, the more excited I got. So it's a combination of a really big industry, uh, almost no pe digital penetration, and, you know, it's consumer facing and something my grandmother can understand, right? It's not esoteric or arbitrage or, you know, <laughs> uh, ad tech or something that like, you know, I, you tell somebody what you do and, and no one understands it. And, yeah. and I like that. I like something that that is tangible and affects people's lives and has an impact on, you know, the general, the general consumer population. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, something that's not necessarily just for like tech elites and SF, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. And you said it in one sentence. <laughs> I understand. No, because I do hear about a lot of different ideas, obviously through, through the show and um, things that do reach a broader population are, are always kind of interesting because just the massive impact they they can have and this type of thing everyone can relate to to you know be able to fix your car in kind of an easy simple way and one thing just to go back to real quick joel in those you know you had some time off before this what were you thinking of doing at that time or were you thinking that you may not even join another company i'm just curious what you were doing then no i i, I spent some time in the garage uh, you know i'd spent seven years before that running uh or co-running, I should say, um, a venture-backed ticketing company called Scorebig. And um, I, I was taking some time off to, you know, kind of reconnect with with family and friends and yeah. and figure out what I want to do next. And I actually worked on a dating app. Um, I, I also wanted to kind of just do some programming. And so I, <laughs> I, I wrote a dating app and um, I pushed it into the app store in New Zealand um, and was testing it out. And then Facebook announced that they were getting into dating, which at the time hasn't really panned out, but at the time was a pretty big deal to investors. And so, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a rougher road to, to travel than expected. And, and uh, this other thing came along. So I, I decided to put my dating app into the deep storage vault and, <laughs> and move on to this. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Facebook dating. I, I looked at it. And I'm technically on it. But yeah, to your point, it hasn't really taken off at all, it seems like. Uh, it, it hasn't. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's odd because, like I said, I had a bunch of investors lined up for this new dating thing. I mean, kind of uh, angel investors, shall we say. Yeah. And, um, you know, Facebook did a their conference. They announced the next big thing is dating. And if you're an, you know, a seed investor and you hear that, you think, 
well, they're just going to dominate it because they know everything about you. So they should be able to come up with my perfect match, but it, it really hasn't happened. Yeah. Interesting to see why some things take off and why some don't. And even looking at more of like even social apps and people thinking Facebook would dominate, crush, whatever, you know, Snapchat, because Facebook owns Instagram and everything and how that hasn't happened <laughs> and Snapchat <laughs> continues to thrive, uh, which yeah. is fascinating. And cause I actually heard from Evan Spiegel in an MBA class of mine and him talking about how, you know, why they would be successful still, uh, regardless of what Facebook was doing. And it becomes more clear once you get more of the information on the inside and, and going through then you're, you're doing this, you then decide to take on the role of repair Smith. This is an exciting idea affecting a lot of people. What were some of the first things you did once you, once you started this company then? You know, I, I was in a very fortunate position and, and frankly, part of the attractiveness of the role was that it, it had already been funded or there, you know, a, a funding commitment had been made. Yeah. So I got to kind of skip that step, which has uh, been my normal experience of, of scrap, you know, the, the really scrappy convince people to join for equity or low salary or, you know, put out an MVP, et cetera. This was a little bit different because of the way it was funded and conceived of. And so I got to jump right into, you know, almost, you know, series a, um, build a business stage. And so the first thing I did was, was build out our team. And, you know, we, um, I, well, the very first thing I did was review the plans that, that had been put in place prior to my joining. We had some good discussions about that. We kind of finalized those. And then, and then I got to building a team because at that stage and scale of business that we're trying to build, um, Joel doesn't scale past one. Right. And so I would be a bottleneck, even though I, I've done a lot of the different jobs within a startup before. I've pretty much done them all, right? From finance to marketing to writing code, um, you name it. And so, but, you know, uh, I'm one person. And when you're trying to build a big company, that just becomes a bottleneck. So replacing myself was my first order of business and put together a great team, you know, great head of technology, great head of product, great head of marketing. And then, and then, um, we all sat down. The second thing we did was was really sit down and decide on the culture of the company to figure out what kind of company we want it to be, because uh, ultimately culture is going to happen. So if you're not intentional about it, it will probably happen in a way that you're not looking for it to happen, and you'll have to fix it later. So those were kind of the first couple things. Yeah, and with that too, Joe, on the the team building culture side of things, where are you getting these first, you know? people for your, for your company to join you? Was it just kind of your network? Was it uh, outreach in different ways? I'm curious, cause that's a huge part of any, any company, especially in the beginning days of find the right team. How are you pursuing people for this role, for the roles you needed? Some of them came from my past life. I've, I've been in the LA tech scene since 09 now, and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people and to know a lot of great people who introduce you to other great people. <laughs> and so that was certainly my first place to start. And a couple of people did come from there. We also had an internal recruiter um, available on day one, uh, which I've never had before, actually. And uh, this person has done a great job of sourcing talent on LinkedIn and and um, putting getting them into the pipeline, into the funnel. So it, it was a combination of network and uh, one dedicated recruiter helping to build the team. And on the note of culture, then what were some of the, you know, 
values or things you were looking for to build out because you had this opportunity to really, you know, from the ground up decide on, you know, how we're going to go about building this culture for RepairSmith. What were the things that you were looking for or how you thought about that process then? Defining a quote that I think of a lot when when thinking about the culture is um, by Daniel Pink, I think is uh, his name. And, and it's that, you know, people... What motivates people most are mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And so, you know, that's, it's kind of a, uh, a lot of research has gone into that. And, and those are kind of the three pillars of motivation uh, professionally. And, and so I think we, you know, we, we use that lens a lot. Uh, so autonomy, right? We said, all right, you have to be available between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., uh, but where you sit is kind of irrelevant to us. You can, if, you know, if you, if you need to take the kids to school that morning or, you know, do something late that evening, we're not going to micromanage your hours. Uh, we're all adults here. And, and so this is going to be a flexible work environment, uh, with those with those kind of minimum guide rails, uh, purpose, you know, this is a job where we help a lot of people get back on the road and, and, uh, navigate a traditionally really unpleasant process, like going to the dentist essentially and, and trying to make it a little bit better. And, and, you know, we really do, uh, have situations where we help people out, uh, quite a bit, you know, who can't, their car is broken and they can't get to work or they can't, you know, get somebody where they need to be. I mean, cars are pretty fundamental, sometimes life and death situations, but I don't think we're, that, we're quite of that level of superpower, but we have, we have real purpose. Um, and then uh, a mastery, right? So like, you know, letting people advance their careers and get good at a craft and having a career path, right? So I can come in and customer service, but I can learn, you know, how to do email marketing and I can grow within the organization and, and develop, you know, uh, a craft that, that matters to me. And so those were like really core pillars of a lot of the culture decisions we made. And, and from that as well, Joel, you mentioned, you know, a lot of employees at this point, you know, 2020, but back then in 2018, you're kind of already funded by, you know, Daimler AG, Mercedes Benz. How big was the team initially then where you kind of to launch this thing in the first place? Initially, when I got there, initially, when, when we first uh, uh, launched from MVP to, to consumer. Yeah, MVP to consumer. MVP to consumer was about 50 people. Um, so, uh, and that, and that breaks down between, you know, uh, HQ back office was probably about 35, uh, something like that. Uh, if you think of all the, you know, developers, product, finance, a couple of, you know, ad finance and admin, um, marketing, et cetera, it was about in the thirties and then about 10 people in the field to, uh, and some, you know, customer service, of course, and, and um, operations folks on the automotive side. Uh, with that as well, then, how have you looked at the different markets you're going to serve with this? I know you're in a variety of cities now, but how have you approached that strategically in terms of thinking about which markets we start in, how we expand from there? I'd be curious to know more about that, Joel. Yeah, well, we started, you know, we, we based the company in Los Angeles, and a, a big piece of that was it, it was really the best combination for us of technology talent plus a lot of cars yeah. right? <laughs> southern california has has more cars than anywhere else in the country 
uh, and it has a ton of great technology talent, right? Uh, there's, I think there's more graduating engineers in SoCal than, than anywhere else in the country every year, right? All the universities we have here. So from, from that overlap perspective, it gave us a big f- field to play with on, on terms of both building and then uh, operating um, and going out and finding lots of cars to, to work with. Uh, but then we've grown from here uh, geographically, right? So expanded throughout the Southwest. We're now in all of California, pretty much. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, Vegas. And we just launched this week in Portland. So we're kind of starting from the bottom left corner and and working our way across the map. From that, then, how do you look at new markets? Is it literally just like, okay, obviously there's the geographically close to where you started. So you're kind of expanding out from there or like are there certain markets that you would jump into another one farther away, potentially? Like, how do you look at that side of things, Joel? Yeah, it's, I think our default is, is, uh, distance, you know, closeness to home. Um, and obviously, so if I think of a state like Texas, right, it's, it's not that far from California. There's a bunch of big cities there. That's pretty attractive. You know, that's, that's an attractive market. Um, and then you got to figure out which cities within Texas, right? Obviously, Dallas and Houston are the two major metro areas. And then there's a bunch of mid-sized metro areas and smaller ones. And so I think, you know, we, we kind of created a, a forced rank list like that based on population, distance, weather, um, some demographic information of the market. And, you know, there's basically about 100 city metro areas in the U.S. that have over half a million people. Uh, and so we just went through the list. And now... There we have, as we've grown for, at, you know, when we started, we just kind of picked the cities and said, okay, we're going to go do Vegas. It's, it's, it's an hour away from LA or you know two hours from LA and, and it got a bunch of people and uh, the weather's good. So let's go do it. But as we've grown, we started to, to have partnerships. And so we have, you know, national customers who um, we might do warranty work for them, or we might uh, do fleet work for them. And so they've said, hey, we've got a bunch of uh, vehicles in Portland, Oregon. And if you launch in Portland, we'll be giving you work right away. And so we said, well, Portland's our next city, coincidentally. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, uh, it just overtook Texas as the next ranking city. So, uh, you know, we'll adjust our, our schedule based on customers who will say, hey, come on in. And with that as well, Joel, I mean, what are some of the components then of actually launching in a new city? Like, what does it take to say, okay, yeah, RepairSmith is now going to be in Portland, for instance. What are some things that go into that launch? Yeah. Well, I mean, we are a very digital business, so we're able to fully launch um, on the uh, acquisition side or the customer side, the marketing side online, right? So it's online, online marketing, channel partners. And, you know, we can have appointments up and running really easily. And then, of course, we need to have local fulfillment. And, and that means hiring technicians. And, well, we'll often transfer an existing experienced technician or a couple from an existing market to a new market to either go out there and train or sometimes they, they just want to relocate there. We've had that happen a number of times now. Um, you know, hey, do you want to move from from L.A. to Tucson, Arizona, and people raise their hands. So, um, uh, but we need to get some technicians in the market. We need to ship out the vehicles, et cetera. So, uh, but mostly it's digital and, and we can be up and running very quickly within a matter of uh, a couple of weeks. 
And, and how has that gone then on, on that, that note as well, kind of matching supply demand in terms of the needs you actually have? Like, how have you done that? Because in many ways, it's a marketplace of sorts. How have you gone about that process then too, Joel? Well, so RepairSmith is not a marketplace. And that was a kind of a big decision up front uh, that we had to really settle on and get comfortable with in that all of our technicians are employees and they have you know full-time hours and benefits and um, everything an employee would have. And the reason for that for our business is that, you know, the level of trust and expertise required to do car repair and do it well is high. And, and we don't want, we as a company, we're not comfortable sending out a gig worker, uh, to go repair people's cars because, you know, it's repairing a car is very different than delivering a McDonald's order. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, that their 10 plus years experience and their license, you know, they're, they, they went to college for it and they're licensed and, you know, they're fully employed. So why would you leave your job at, you know, repair shop X and come work for repair Smith if you didn't have at least as good, um, uh, job uh, benefits and in work environment. And so, you know, we just felt that to deliver the service we wanted to deliver to the customers, they all had to be employees. So that is to say that uh, we hire people up front and then we drive the demand to match the supply that we hire. But it's no different than any, you know, chain of, you name it, whether it's repair shops or any local retail business operates this way, right? It's not something new or novel you want to open a plumbing business or an electric you know be a hvac repair company that's just how you operate it's totally normal within retail yeah and i'm just curious going back to that you made that decision because of the the trust i mean was it a difficult decision what were some of the things that went into that besides like we're not going to be a marketplace or was it pretty simple that okay yeah we're not gonna be able to do that look i think it was a very simple decision um and I think that the folks within our company viewed it as who have a lot of experience with car repair viewed it as a simple decision. And I think if you look at the online reviews, you know, for folks who have tried it, it becomes also pretty, pretty uh, apparent. Uh, of course, investors who don't run businesses <laughs> have, have um, you know, come accustomed to a certain business model. Sure. Which honestly remains to be seen if it's any good or not because uh you know obviously etsy and ebay are fantastic marketplaces right but yeah. but there's a lot of these other marketplaces that that have yet to ever make a dollar of profit right and so um i think uber will be a much better business once they own their own fleet of robot cars than than as a marketplace right and that's essentially a vertically integrated company uh it's doubtful they'll ever make money until they do that. And so I think that, you know, there is a academic or trend away from it, but, but anyone who runs the business, it was an easy decision. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I, I, to your point of Uber, uh, that's if Tesla doesn't beat him to it. <laughs> that's right. Well, well, you know, um, there, I think there'll be many fleets of big fleets of robot cars in the future. Right. But, but Uber's in a great position from a, from a, a cust, you know, owning the customer is, is certainly more than half the battle, right. The fulfilling 
I think you have more time to figure out as as many folks have shown over time. So I think they're they're well positioned for that. But I, I think that that's what makes them a really exciting business down the road, not this marketplace business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I want to discuss too is just in terms of the pricing with RepairSmith, because you're obviously delivering is repair on demand. Like, how have you thought through that side of the business? You know, comparing to maybe other options that con- consumers would have for repairing their cars. Well, we've we've from day one another one of our um, kind of fundamental pillars of of what we wanted to build was that it would there'd be no premium for delivery, right? Which is what people have come to expect across most channels. Although to be fair, you know, we do pay a little extra to have our meals delivered to us now. It's not the exact same price as if you had it in a store. Um, but but the willingness to pay the delivery fee is still pretty darn low. Amazon has ruined that for, for the world, right? <laughs> and so, um, but that was, you know, we wanted it to be the same. And so that was the starting principle. And I think we've delivered that for the most part. And we are able to do that just because we had a different cost structure from day one, right? We never invested in the, in the, in the long-term leases and the build out of space and the big, heavy, bulky equipment uh, lifts and whatnot. So if you, when you reimagine it from the ground up, yeah, we're going to spend a little more on the driving to you piece, but we're going to spend a little less on these other things and, and hopefully it all balances out. Yeah. And just taking a step back, I know, like I said before, like, why do you think there wasn't, why I think it's been like no, no innovation in this space up until this point, really? I'm curious as to why you think that has been the case and, you know, why maybe is the time for this? It's, it's a great question. Um, which from the outside, it, it does seem kind of uh, obvious and curious why it hasn't happened before. Because uh, I don't think we're, we haven't come up with like the new formula for Coca-Cola, right? Delivery right, plus, right. plus, you know, a very common retail business is everyone's tried almost all of them. So the answer is it's really hard to do, okay? And it takes a lot of money and dedication. And so cars, for just one example, there's like 300 million uh SKUs for us to price, which change price all the time, right? So like there's 1.5 million types of cars if you take year times make times model times trim, and then 200 or so common repairs. And now you're pricing out 300 million different, you know, SKUs essentially with parts pricing changing, you know, dynamically. So, and then sometimes customers don't know what the problem is, right? And and so doing online uh, quoting and scheduling is actually way harder than just saying, come on down, I'll take a look at it. Uh, and so it's hard, uh, showing up with the right parts hundreds of times each day with, with vehicles all over the city is hard. Um, and so I, and it's not something you can just kind of do on the cheap, throw out MVP Silicon Valley style and expect to have good results. Right. That's it required a big vision and a big investment to get to where we are today. And, and luckily we we have a partner who's a, you know, a fortune 100 global manufacturer who can see the big opportunity and is willing to make the big investment to, to, to build the platform to allow us to do this. Well, and to that, to that point, Joel, I mean, just taking, I guess, a, a step back, what are some of the logistics behind this in terms of actually having you guys pull this off? Obviously the financial backing of, like you said, a big company that allows you to do this, but I mean, what are some of those things you've done to be able to deliver this type of service with that many different SKUs to people all over these different cities? I'm curious. Well, you know, first off, you have to build the mobile repair shop on wheels, right? And so 
Mercedes has had two really valuable um, pieces that we were able to leverage, which one is they know how to repair cars really well. Uh, and two is, so a lot of great engineers and, and some of them joined our company, right? Uh, to, to put in place the, the, the workflows and the work processes and the standards that we have. And, and number two is the Sprinter van is, you know, one of the top work vans in the country, if not the top, you know, top, there's top two, three for sure. And we're able to work with the van team to build out uh, a van that's fully kitted up with all the, you know, the shelving and the fluids and the uh, compressed air and power and, and et cetera, that you need to do modern car repair and, and, and safely and cleanly, right? So you're, you can suck the oil out and not spill any, et cetera. Uh, so we're able to get those vehicles through our affiliation with Mercedes and, and invest in that kind of engineering platform. Uh, that I think it would be hard for a regular startup to to do that at scale without raising a ton of money. Uh, so that was that was one big piece of the logistics, and then you know there's the supply chain piece of, as you said, you know as I said that a lot of different cars and a, a lot of different parts, and being able to show up on time and and at the right time, and that's been a big investment in software, and it just there was nothing even close off the shelf. There are off-the-shelf packages to run a, a shop, but they don't have all the the you know the workflow changes when it's in the mobile format, and so it just didn't work for that. So we had to build it. Yeah, and one of the things I'm thinking of, I guess, with this as well, I and in terms of Mercedes, obviously they're investing and backed by them. Why did they want to invest in a a startup doing this versus just have it be them that does this as a service per se? Is it just confusion between the brands? Or I'm just curious on what you think around that. Well, I don't want to go too deep into their, you know, I, I can't really answer stuff that's, um, that's their, you know, strategy. Sure. Uh, I, I, I would say that generally speaking, uh, the industry as a whole is, certainly aware that mobile repair is the future and you know we've all seen tesla doing it and they built it from the ground up just for their brand only for you know from for tesla uh, but there's many more car companies that are going to be launched direct to consumer that it will need this kind of service there's um you know certainly dealerships around the country are starting to offer it in here and there and then, uh, you know, we really focus on the independent market, the the five to twenty year old vehicles that are, you know, post warranty period that that generally don't go to the dealership, and um, you know, we see that as a as a big opportunity space. Um, so, but you know, RepairSmith was always set up to be multi brand, uh, not tied to Mercedes, right? So we fix every make and model car um, and not any one in particular. We're, we're, you know, our goal is to be an industry solution, not a Mercedes solution. With that as well, then, I mean, just thinking of the actual experience and having so many great customer reviews and people obviously enjoying it, take me through what it's like when someone actually uses uh, your product in terms of how long does this take? What's the sign-up process like? I'd be curious to see more of those details. Yeah, so, I mean, we think that the... The booking experience should be quick and easy compared to how you would normally have to experience it, right? So you can go on our website, repairsmith.com. Uh, you can get an upfront quote. If it's a if it's a an issue that you know what the issue is, then you'll get an exact you know an exact price with, that we'll guarantee or stand behind. 
if it's I hear a rattling noise, then we're going to have to come out and take a look at it and do a diagnostic visit. And so um, that's the upfront digital experience. You'll pick a time. You'll uh, we'll have a real time schedule on our website that you can say, okay, tomorrow at two p.m. two to four p.m. I think we have t- we have two hour windows. Um, so not it's not like you know the the furniture delivery guys that say sometime before noon or sometime <laughs> afternoon. Um, yeah. So we try to give a pretty tight delivery window. Of course, it's impossible to be exact because sometimes you're in a job in the morning and it goes longer than expected or it's quicker than expected. So it's not a perfect science, but we think two hours is kind of the right balance between flexibility and, and being reasonable. And then we'll show up and repair your car in the driveway. And, and, and now, of course, in the COVID era, it's a contactless experience. The customer can even stay inside their house and just talk to us on the phone. Or if they want to come out and stand in the driveway or in the yard and talk to the technician, then they can. And, um, you know, the technician will tell them what they find and, and have an interactive experience at home. Just like you, I mean, just like you would have an experience from if you called a plumber or an electrician or an HVAC uh, contractor. Yeah, just making it as seamless as possible, it seems like, and just leveraging what people would already expect, which is through an online system uh, to yeah, be able to do that. I mean, we, we certainly think that you know, what, you don't take your toilet to the plumber, right? And, and so once, <laughs> once the plumber comes to your home, that's just kind of how you, how you think about it. And we think that car repair should be no different. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I want to go back to, I know you, you say you didn't have to raise funding for this company, obviously being backed by Daimler AG, Mercedes-Benz. And and so, but in your past experience, you've had a number of venture-backed companies before. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of founders listening to this show. So I always like to get you know, advice or, or experiences on, on fundraising. Anything you'd say on the fundraising part, just from your experience being at a number of venture-backed companies around what's maybe most helpful for founders to understand as they're going through this, if they do have to raise funding for their company? Sure. Well, look, I, I think that the funding market has drastically evolved over the last 20 years. You know, when, when I raised my first round of, of, of funding in the, in the, Jesus, I guess right around 2000, it was very much a network based, you know, uh, call up a lawyer who introduces you to this person, <laughs> who introduces you to that person kind of process. And it was very opaque on how it all worked and, um, it, you know, difficult. There's a lot more structure to it now. And, and, um, you know, there's this layer of incubators, uh, there's, you know, endless content online to, to research about like your podcast being one of them, of course. Right. (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, certainly you could, I could spend the rest of the year just reading about how to fundraise and, uh, which is amazing for entrepreneurs because there is a, um, a clear, you know, everyone has different advice, but there's a ton of information out there. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say that I think incubators serve in a fantastic role for a first-time entrepreneur or a um, you know a very early stage idea, and they're pretty. The deals are pretty fair, and if you can get into one of those, they can really coach you up to that just to get to that seed stage, which seed is like the the, the new Series A, right? <laughs> you see these seed rounds that are three, four million dollars, yep. and that used to be a solid Series A, you know over a decade ago. So um, it, it's, it, I think it's very well structured now. So, so I would start with the, with the incubator programs. Um, and I would, you know, of course, think about having a great team uh, with a technical co-founder and, and a, you know, a non possibly depends on the business a non-technical co-founder and, you know, thinking about the people you want to go on the journey with. 
And, and from that as well, so I know you've obviously been in startups and kind of entrepreneurship for a number of years now, but you mentioned being in the LA tech scene since 09. How have you seen that evolve or have there been any, you know, any changes you've noticed about kind of being in Los Angeles and how, how this tech scene has changed? Obviously, we're in 2020 recording this, how it's changed, you know, coming into 2020 then? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's night and day, really, um, which is surprising in 10 years. I think when, when I first moved here, there was just the beginning rumblings of Silicon Beach, and we have a, we're not a media, we're not just an entertainment town. We're, <laughs> we're also a tech town, and I found it to be a little bit uh, fictitious, like aspirational, shall we say, uh, versus reality uh, of the depth and and breadth. Um, and and you also had this problem uh, of geography, which was that there was no tech capital in Los Angeles in the in, you know let's call it 15 years ago, there was, you know, you had idea lab out in Pasadena and some, you know, you had a bunch of stuff around Caltech and, and Pasadena area. You had some stuff in orange County and you had stuff downtown and you had stuff in the West side, et cetera. <laughs> and, and that matters, right? Because the concentration of tech, that ecosystem builds ecosystem. And, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, buildup of the West side, uh, tech ecosystem, I think has really pushed it forward. Uh, and then you have company, you know, you had a number of unicorns over the last decade, right? So from snap to, um, the, the razor blade company, um, dollar shave, dollar Club, shave Club, and, yeah. you know, the list goes on and on. Honey I is think another be- one. Yeah. Yeah. Honey recently. Right. And, but I think before that, I think the only big outcomes had been some, some B2B companies, maybe some ad, there was an ad, you know, ad tech and stuff like that, but not, not really on the consumer side. So uh, I think with the, with the, with the big uh, exits, you end up with a bunch of people who made a bunch of money, but more importantly, who have it on their resume and can go raise money. Yeah. I was a early employee at snap. Right. And then that person's going to get instantly funded to do the next thing. And they're going to hire a bunch of people who go through the pro- startup process who will then get funded to do the next thing. And so I've, I've seen it go from aspirational to, I would say the legitimate second, uh, largest tech, um, destination in the country. Yeah. And it's interesting, like you mentioned to the point of, yes, they get funded again for their ideas, which kind of feeds into it. And a lot of people as well, I mean, they'll become angel investors, they'll invest in other companies. There's more capital deploy in this city. And obviously there's still going to always be Silicon Valley, but you know, in a city like Los Angeles, that is so spread out. The west side of Pasadena is far. Like no one's going to like drive, especially in like normal times with traffic. Like that's a very far drive. So in terms of like being in a hub and being that close together, it matters. Like it, it does matter. Uh, and you're all kind of close there if you are on the West side. Uh, and you still have these different pockets of people that are in these different areas, but there's just more concentrated on the West side with, with your Facebook and your YouTube and whoever big companies and Snapchat and everything, but then more startups being focused on just the West side of Los Angeles. And, and one of the things I want to talk about too, I know you've have a, a big initiative with, with COVID. Take me through your reaction to COVID and how you've kind of gone through that with repair Smith and helping other people out. Sure. So we were fortunate, lucky, um, et cetera, that we happened to be working on a business model that was COVID friendly, right? And so uh, people have been looking for, you know, they still have to get their car repaired. They're still, the car still has to run. And, 
you know, maybe the car's sitting there for a long time and the battery goes dead, but they're looking for a safe way to do it. And so our business model, we built it to be the most convenient form of car repair and it turned out to be the safest as well. So that hasn't been, been, been bad for us. We did, you know, recognize that it's been bad for a lot of people. And so the first thing we did was donate a hundred thousand dollars in free car repair for, uh, COVID affected people. So that was, you know, frontline workers, you know, doctors, nurses, um, healthcare workers, and, you know, any hourly workers who, who needed to get, who were part of, uh, essential workers, right? Essential services back then, you know, that, that's not, I guess, still a thing right now, but back in April, uh, there was people who were really putting themselves on the front line just to go to the, go work at the grocery store. Right. And, and so we gave a hundred thousand free car repair to, to that group. And then since then, and, 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 and it worked out great. And, and we, we, you know, we had a lot of very happy, um, customers and, we felt really good about it. It was just a great program overall. And so we decided let's, let's do that again, but let's do it at a bigger scale and, and make it more repeatable and something we can just make part of our culture. And so we launched the, um, the jumpstart program, which is a quarter million dollars of free car repair over the next year. Uh, that's going to run all through charities. And so charities that, uh, are, are, in the local communities serving um, populations, um, underrepresented populations in our communities, right? So uh, it might be uh, the organization here in LA we worked with that, that delivers you know hundreds of meals every day to people who uh, can't go out and do their own shopping, or might be homebound, or you know be, have cancer, HIV, etc., and are super high risk populations. And so they have a fleet of vans, and and we went and they were you know, a lot of them. Our, they're older vehicles because it's a charity. They're not buying new vehicles. And we went out and fixed them all and got them all up to current safety standards. So, um, you know, that's a program that we're really excited about. And we're going to have some new charity partners to announce this month. That's awesome. And it's such a great initiative to take. And especially at a time like this when it is so difficult for so many people. And it's interesting to see how COVID has affected some businesses in a dramatic you know, positive way and some in obviously a massive negative way. And it, just seeing people help help out is, is is great from humanity perspective as well. And and one of the things I'm curious about just with, you know, your journey in the last uh, number of years with, with these different companies as well, any particular books that have been useful, valuable, whether it be personal or professional? I read a lot of books. And so I, I always have trouble with the, uh, with the, uh, the lists of books, because uh, there, you know, there's 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 so many, right? There's a book um, on the founding of Twitter that I think it, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf. I can't remember the name of it, but that 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 was an excellent, you know, the story of. I'm sorry that the name's escaping me right now, but um, the the story of Twitter is is a you know an amazing story of of some entrepreneurs building a consumer service that people loved and and a lot of tough choices along the way. Um, whenever anyone asks me what my favorite book on entrepreneurship is, I, I, my, my, uh, answer is it's a book called the, the ship of gold in the deep blue sea. And it's, uh, something, you know, a, a business or a venture you n- probably never heard about. Um, <laughs> but it's a guy who's, I think he was, a um, he was an engineering student or an engineer in the Midwest, like in Nebraska or something. 
And there was this ship of gold that, that sunk during the California gold rush when it was bringing gold from San Francisco back to New York. And it sunk in the, like out in the Caribbean, out in the Atlantic after it had gone through the Panama canal and it was carrying a ton of gold. And he decided that he was going to figure out a way to go down and, uh, and, and discover and find it and, and, and recover it. And so he raised money, right? Like from, from doctors and such in the eighties in, in, Nebraska, or I can't remember exact state, but somewhere near there. And, you know, he had to go around and, and, and ask for 25 grand and 50 grand here and there and convince these guys that he was going to go be a, a treasure hunter and, and invent <laughs> and invent the technology. I mean, the technology didn't exist to see, you know, the sonar in order to see that level of detail down at the bottom of the ocean floor in the deep ocean. They'd never recovered a ship this deep before. It'd never been done before. And so, he invented the technology and then he invented the technology to go down that deep and recover it, which, which was later used to discover the Titanic, I believe, where, you know, that shipwreck. So it's a, it's an engineering story. It's a fundraising and, and uh, lots of failure story. And it's like an Indiana Jones adventure. All in one. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't heard of it before. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm looking forward to checking that one out. And, and what I'm curious of too is how do you manage your time day to day? Everyone has obviously the same amount of time, but I'm kind of fascinated by this and people's approaches at least. How do you kind of manage your time day to day? One interesting uh, side effect of getting old has been that I've become a morning person. And, <laughs> and I, I wasn't always, I'll, I will admit. Uh, but nowadays, 5 a.m. is no big deal to me. It's, it's when I open my eyes. Yeah. And so I found it to be incredibly productive. Um, uh, being able to put in a couple, two, three hours before the emails start banging. Uh, so starting or, or the kids start going or whatever <laughs> it is. And so I've, I found that being an early riser um, has made me a much more productive and being able to, to bang out a lot and get the day set up before everyone else start before the meetings start and, and everything else happens. That's probably been my number one, productivity improvement in the last five years. Um, so I'll go with that. Yeah. There is something to be said for having that time before the world wakes up. Uh, it's just, it, yeah, one yeah. of the easiest hacks of and, sorts. Yeah, it, it, it really is fantastic. Um, so I've, I've been, uh, I don't know what my excuse is for doing it. Cause I feel like I definitely don't have a, a, a quite a number of years under my belt. Uh, but, but I somehow have still been a very early riser for a year. I think it was like, honestly, it was football in college. We had these early morning workouts and I've always kind yeah. of stuck to it since then, uh, for whatever reason. And it's kind of crazy, but it gives you, it gives you that that time to really think and do the important things because like I said, there's no, there's no one paying you at you know, 4am, 5am. Like it's, just it, no it's true. And like, the thing is, is, is I used to work till midnight all the time in my twenties. Right. But you're not nearly as productive after a long day of work meetings and everything else. And then you're, you're working at night in the, or, you know, after dinner, you're not as productive. You're tired. You're, you know, you're distracted. There are no distractions or tiredness at, at, at six in the morning, uh, when you've had your cup of coffee and it's just quiet and peaceful. So yeah, I, I think, I think that's been fantastic. Yeah. And it's just, if you think about it, I mean, it's just reallocating time. Like you could, if you can get more productive hours out of the same hour, I mean, then it's kind of almost a no brainer in some ways, if you can get used to that schedule, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the downside is I can never make it through a movie anymore in the evenings because uh, <laughs> I, I, I go to bed earlier. And so uh, I can often be found uh, um, 
asking my kids the next day, hey, what happened at the end of that? Did I stay up for the end of that? I can't remember. <laughs> well, l- luckily, I, I also think that luckily my, my friends have become accustomed to it. So they just expect me to go to bed early. Uh, yeah. So now they just just like, oh, well, it's Justin's bedtime. I get so much crap for that, by the way. Yeah, uh, exactly. like, it's Justin's bedtime now. I'm like, yes, you are you are correct. Okay. I will go there to bed you go. at eight or nine o'clock, whatever. It's fine. Um, and one of the last things I'm... Who, who doesn't, Justin, who doesn't go to bed at nine o'clock? I mean, come on, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> My friends tell me they're up at 10 or 11 p.m. Like, how do you do it? 10 p.m. Jeez, what are you, crazy? (laughs) What I'm wondering as well, one of the last questions I have as well, how do you recharge outside of work, Joel? The answer used to be travel. (laughs) It used to be- (laughs) Oh, that thing. uh, I like to to ski, right? So I I would love to go to Utah next weekend and and go skiing or or wherever. Lake Tahoe or whatnot, uh, spending time with my kids. You know, I think everyone's had to adjust to that in this, in this current reality, uh, where you can't just hop on a plane and, and go lie on a beach in Hawaii for the weekend to, to recharge. Um, so lately, you know, I've been trying to force myself to, to do a lot more walking and hiking and, and just getting out and about within Los Angeles rather than the escapism that's that's been my normal procedure. Uh, but of course, it's it's trying to power down the phone and, and spend time with with people that you love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is different just with the current COVID situation, but um, everyone's finding a way to adapt because you don't have a choice. <laughs> you have <Yes>. to. <laughs> It's amazing what happens. Or not adapt and just be depressed all the time. Yeah, there's also that, which is very real for many people as well. Like either way, just make it through. (laughs) Of course. And and one of the last things I'm wondering just uh, is what is just the big vision for RepairSmith moving forward? Well, the big vision. Well, the big vision is to become a verb, right? Um, I got to get my car RepairSmith. But, you know, fundamentally, we're trying to take an entire industry and shift it from a local retail model to an at-home service, and that's a and it's and it's a big industry. Uh, you could probably oh take out your phone and say car repair near me right now, and you'd have five to ten options within spitting distance. And so, um, you know, we think it's a really big opportunity to transform a really big industry into something that people just like more and and is a better experience. And where can people go to learn more about what you're doing, connect with you as well, Joel? Of course, repairsmith.com is the place where you can learn about it, book it, experience it. Thank you so much for taking the time to come to the show today, Joel. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.